Great British Manufacturing Podcast, brought to you by MTD, MFG and Jefferson. Hello and welcome to the Great British Manufacturing Podcast. On this week's show, we will review the news from the last seven days and introduce a special guest, who is Phil Hamlin-Williams, author of the recently published book, How Britain Shaped the Manufacturing World. But before we start, I'd like to mention Factory Now. The Factory Now initiative has been launched with the help of boosting British manufacturing sector, collaborate and reshore. One of our members, TPS 360, the UK's leading surface protection provider, has a range of new job opportunities at its recently opened Tamworth office. If, anything, if anyone is interested, please email your CV to info at tps360.co.uk. Stuart, welcome. How are we doing? Yeah, really good, Joe. Uh, looking forward to today's podcast. We've got a raft of uh, positive stories and a fantastic guest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been a great week. Uh, lots of news to go through. And yeah, like you say, yeah. Uh, a very, a very special guest. I'm looking forward to uh, making a start. But let, let's start with a, a long-term client of ours, uh, Renishaw. What, what, this is a fantastic investment story. Certainly is. A global engineering company is to invest more than £50 million at its Miskin site in South Wales to increase manufacturing capacity and to help meet its net zero emissions targets. This, will, this investment will see 400,000 square feet of additional low-carbon buildings created at the site to the west of Cardiff, consisting of two new production halls and an employee welfare facility. Existing production halls will also be refurbished to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And the construction, set to almost double the well site's footprint, will com- be completed in phases with a 15-month programme of work starting next month. That, that's an incredible site already. So to double the size of it, I, I, I can't wait to go back and say it's a huge site as it already is. So moving on to the next one, uh, Knuff, they've acquired a new factory, haven't they? Yes, the Gemini manufacturer, they've reached an agreement with JIP4 for the purchase of a new plasterboard manufacturing plant in Newport, South Wales, which will increase the UK production volume of Knorst uh, range of gypsum-based building materials by around 20%. Construction of the facility is progressing well, with commissioning due to begin later this year and is set to be fully operational early next year. This latest news follows the firm's recent announcement to invest £45 million expanding capacity to UK glass mineral wool plants in St. Helens and Cambran. Yeah, and this next story, Lola, um, they were turning after a decade. A nice story, this one. Great, Yeah, great to see them back. The British racing car manufacturer is set to be revived 10 years after it closed for business, following a, a buyout by the founder of investment firm Erosa Capital. The new owners purchased all Lola assets, including its fully operational wind tunnel and technical centre in Huntington, plus the intellectual property and designs for all cars created since the company was founded by Eric Broadley in 1958. And continuing the automotive theme, we've got great news from Nissan, Teva and McMurty. For those that didn't see that uh, that, that, that lap, it was incredible, wasn't it, that McMurty? Oh, unbelievable. Uh, so McMurty Automotive, they, they're planning to build a road legal version of its um, spurling electric car after the single-seater smash Goodwood Festival of Speed hill climb record um last weekend with a time of 39.08 seconds um nissan they're creating 300 new jobs at sunderland plant it prepares to build electric versions of both the duke and the Qashqai. and teva they've launched the first hydrogen electric truck designed and built in the uk the firm has raised more than 150 million pound in funding and they're set to create around about a thousand jobs at its new factory in tilby in, in essex 
Yeah, fantastic news for the uh, for the wider automotive industry. But let's take a brief pause there, Stuart. There's plenty more news to uh, to come on to in a short while. But at this stage, I'd like to introduce this week's guest, Phil Hamlin Williams, who's the author of the recently published book, How Britain Shaped the Manufacturing World. Welcome, Phil. Well, thank you for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Yeah, we're interested to learn more about the book. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? What's your background? Okay, so I'm Phil Hamlin Williams. I'm a writer. Um, I went to university to read engineering, um, but found the maths a little too challenging. So I dropped out and became an accountant, eventually a partner in Pricewaterhouse. I loved learning about my manufacturing clients, loved touring factories, understanding their business. But some years later, I left PwC for the not-for-profit sector. And then I discovered writing and belatedly took a part-time BA in humanities and then an MA in professional writing. My first book, War on Wheels, was published six years ago and five more have followed. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. And uh, what's inspired you to write this book? You've mentioned, obviously, in, 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 your, in your background there, your passion for manufacturing. But what, what, um, what inspired you? Okay, so my my first books explored how the army had been supplied in the two world wars. My father had led the Royal Army Ordnance Corps in World War II and had also served in the Great War. And he left an astonishing archive of material. My researches uncovered so many companies that put their shoulder to the war effort in both wars that I just needed to find out where they came from. I discovered that my great-grandfather had exhibited at the Great Exhibition of 1851, and so I got hold of a copy of the catalogue and began to explore the names and read the political and social history. Morning, Phil. It's Stuart. Thanks very much for joining us, and uh, fascinating to hear about your background and and the the motivation for for writing the book. I know that you're very keen to celebrate British manufacturing, as you said. Would you please give us and our listeners a brief synopsis of the book? Yes. Um, so I looked through at the prism of the Great Exhibition, back to the origins of British manufacturing, and then forward a century to the Festival of Britain in 1951. Um, and I found that in the mid-18th century, Britain was essentially a subsistence economy prospering and declining in line with uncertain harvests. Now, there were, of course, a few people growing wealthy on trade with faraway places. Britain, after all, was a seafaring nation. But still, it was wealth in land that ruled. Then something happened. Merchants who had imported wonderful cotton textiles from India realised that they could make vastly more money by importing raw cotton and using local labour and the benign climatic conditions of the Northwest to spin and weave in Britain. And I think it was this that ignited a process that we now know as the Industrial Revolution. It was what happened next, I think, that was crucial. The Napoleonic Wars shut off a large continental market and prices crashed. Merchants needed to reduce their costs, and they turned more and more to mechanisation. 
factories began to emerge. And the Great Exhibition showed off the fruits of this industrialization. If you look through the catalogue, you'll find textiles and textiles machinery. You'll find steam engines, sewing machines, railway locomotives, and steam-powered ships. Interestingly, telegraph apparatus too. In the book, I explore the characters involved and the companies. But after the Great Exhibition, there followed an even greater period of invention. We had the bicycle, electric motors and generating machinery, the internal combustion engine, powering land-based vehicles, ships, but of course, also aircraft. We had the tin can, refrigeration and radio, antibiotics, anaesthetics, and terrolene. These came from Britain, and I think it's a fascinating story. No, absolutely. And, um, and what would you say were the most significant trends and themes you uncovered during your research? And was there anything that surprised you? Okay, well, let's look at trends first. I had naively seen the Industrial Revolution as a linear progression. What I found was a hive of energetic people making, improving, learning from each other in a creative but largely disorganised way. I rather suspect that much of this continues. In terms of surprises, uh, we think of British manufacturing as comprised of British people. I found that it was Britain, a welcoming nation, that attracted many talented people from other countries. Brunel, Siemens, Hugo Hurst, Marconi, Ferranti, to name just a few. It was also Britain's patent laws um, that gave much greater protection than these people might have had in their home country. So they came here. Nevertheless, it was Britain, I think, where it started, and it was British people who powered it. So on to themes. Um, British manufacturing began by selling cheap textiles in large quantities. And this was on the back of slavery and child labour. But at the same time, engineers were developing machinery. So I think what happened was that the engineers began to take the lead, and brilliantly. Slavery was mercifully abolished, and the Factory Acts started to improve the conditions for working people. Some remarkable men combined engineering and entrepreneurship, and I think that combination is key. So if we take, for example, Joseph Ruston, who produced farm machinery in Lincolnshire, there's a story of him being asked to visit Russia, who needed steam pumps to drain land to grow cereals. And Ruston went out and indeed sold a good number. But while he was there, he heard that oil was being extracted some hundred miles away, and he travelled on to there to sell his pumps for oil production. Another example, the motor car was not invented by the British, but it was Harry Lawson who set up the first motor factory in Coventry using Daimler engineering. Now soon though, an indigenous British industry followed, and we have names like Lanchester, Humber, Hillman, and of course Morris. Lanchester's story has a lesson for others to learn. He did everything. He had no choice. 
He made all the parts for his cars. He taught his employees. He sold the cars. But he failed to keep an eye on cash flow. And in this sense, he was perhaps the opposite of Lawson, the businessman. He was definitely the opposite of Lucas. They had the product people wanted. They were good at selling. They were exceptionally good at modes of manufacturing. But they kept more than an eye on the balance sheet and so thrived for many decades. ICI in the 20s also offers another lesson. The new combine inherited a massive plant at Billingham for which the intended market never materialised, or rather, the intended market became, began to supply themselves. Now, ICI was brave, and it focused and maintained expenditure on pure research, from which came Perspex and Polythene, to name just two. I think the lesson from this, we shouldn't worry if bulk manufacturing takes place in export markets, so long as we do the R&D. I think distillers, perhaps, is in contrast with ICI, for they were cautious and never really took full advantage of the industrial uses of alcohol from which the early plastics were made. Vickers was probably my favourite amongst the companies I explored. They were a steel producer, a heavy engineer, an aircraft manufacturer and a shipbuilder, but above all an armourer. It is after the period of this book that nationalisation robbed Vickers of steel, aircraft and shipbuilding. It is of course now part of BAE Systems, but is a case of a company losing its main purpose and struggling to find another. The Roots Group is another personal favourite, not least since my dad was export director there in the 50s. The Roots Brothers came from a sales background. But a key to their success in the 50s and 60s was their commitment to offer, when selling a car or a lorry, a full-service infrastructure, both in the UK and in overseas markets. Tragically, they ran out of capital, but that is another story. No, fascinating, Phil. And if you haven't already done so, I, th I strongly recommend you do an audiobook. I could listen to that for hours, Phil. Um, final question from me. Um, the UK's manufacturing sector is currently faced with a number of challenges, as we all know, energy, cost, inflation, supply chain issues, the list goes on. Is there anything in history that could point at a solution? Um, energy um, in the story has both success and failure. Coal and steam were successes. They were homegrown and crucially were embraced quickly. Oil, in my mind, is the failure. Britain kept um, to coal-fueled ships and railways far too long. With shipping, they, this meant they also lost out on the oil tanker market. Railways, though, are interesting. Britain um, was first. It held world records with the Flying Scotsman and the Mallard. The move to diesel and electricity was perhaps where the industry lost the way. But it is now back, not least with Siemens, uh, and the move to greener transport. The move to renewable energy needs to follow the better lesson of not delaying. Also with North Sea Oil, British manufacturing did not feature as much as it should have done. Now there were proud exceptions, the Weir Group with pumps and valves, and of course Trafalgar House. 
Renewables need to be embraced, as indeed they are by some excellent companies. British Fault, of course, a wonderful example, as also is Siemens Energy. Um, just raising the name Siemens again, uh, originally there was a British Siemens and a German Siemens. They were brothers, um, but the British one was most emphatically British. I am fascinated by the, the question of whether Siemens in the UK are British, German or something else. Perhaps it doesn't matter. What does matter, of course, is the, the work they're doing and that it is um, guys in this country um, who are helping them do it. Um, supply chain examples. I think the one that struck me most strongly is the Magneto at the start of World War I. The War Office specified Bosch Magnetos for their vehicles. And of course, once war was declared, the supply was shut off. There was then only one quite small British manufacturer. And in stepped Lucas, who bought the company. They massively expanded production and got into the bargain one of their best leaders, Peter Bennett. Interestingly, as World War II loomed on the horizon, um, steps were, were taken to ensure that Britain was self-sufficient in as much as possible. Now, the third um, you mentioned was inflation. And that, I think, is really the story of the 70s, and so not in the period covered by this book. Um, but I was an accountant through the 70s, and I witnessed the ravages of inflation. Perhaps the lesson is to have systems that can provide management information, taking account of what inflation is doing in real time. But I know here I'm preaching to the converted. Indeed, indeed. In your book, it encompasses a number of wars. Um, you know, what was the impact on British manufacturing at that time and what parallels can we uh, draw with the current Ukraine conflict? OK, so if I could deal with both world wars and the post-war period separately um, and start with the Crimea. And here it is a toss-up between the tin can and the rifle big gun. The tin can came from a competition set up by Napoleon, um, but it was developed in Britain largely for the Navy, vastly improving nutrition. The rifle big gun was the invention of William Armstrong, the Northumberland engineer, whose true passion was hydraulics, the power of water. Nevertheless, it was Armstrong who beat Whitworth and Brunel in providing more accurate guns for both army and navy. The Crimea also provided the impetus to modernise the arsenal at Woolwich. It also quite possibly triggered the growth in the arms trade. Having drawn Armstrong, Vickers and others into producing arms, the war ended and so too did government orders. They then had to sell in the world market alongside Krupp and Schneider. So, at the start of World War I, we had brilliant shipbuilders who also made big guns, because Armstrong, Camel Laird. What we didn't have was an industry to manufacture unimagined tons of ammunition. Equally, the army was small and professional. It had to become vast and industrial. Under the leadership of Lloyd George, industry stepped up to the mark. It is a remarkable story. Massive shell-filling factories and explosive plants 
all manner of businesses right across the country making all manner of military equipment. In the aftermath of war, the world returned first to business as usual. But this hid tectonic changes, particularly in shipping. The British yards focused on reducing capacity to match the demands of the home market, and so they kept away from international developments. This proved to be a major mistake. For the remainder, the whole infrastructure of wartime production had to be dismantled and redirected towards peace. ICI came together from the manufacture of explosives, but also chemicals. For World War II, it was the success of successes of the interwar years which stepped up. Interestingly, much earlier than generally thought, the motor companies began building shadow factories in the mid-30s. So the motor companies in World War II made aeroplanes, they made ammunition, they made tin hats, and so much more, as well as all manner of vehicle, not least the tank. Radio manufacturers enabled the forces to communicate and save Britain through radar. The chemical companies produced explosives, medicines, insulation for cables linking radar stations, and perspex for Spitfire cockpits. Probably it was the aircraft companies themselves which were the greatest successes, with iconic names de Havilland, Hadley Page, Vickers, Supermarine. Shipbuilding did, of course, play its part, but the day of the massive battleship was over. In the aftermath, shipbuilding was again fooled by a brief period of busy yards, until the gap between them and the market became clear, and by then it was too late. There are, of course, survivors. Harlan and Wolfe still stands proud. The motor, electrical and chemical companies powered the export drive, which balanced the nation's books. It was the aircraft manufacturers which suffered. There were too many of them. All iconic names. But even together, they could never have the home market to support the development of international business. And you ask about the war in Ukraine. Well, it seems that the British armament industry has risen to the challenge and did have the right weapons at the right time. It does, though, underline the need to keep developing. I've mentioned Vickers. It almost single-handedly led weapon development pre and during World War II. The story since has not been one of great pride. The problem, I'm sure, is the sheer expense of developing new weapons. With both wars, we grew industries that were too big for peacetime needs. And without overseas markets, they had no choice but to shrink. Some companies took on the international challenge, but all, not all had the necessary resources or vision. Those that did still, they thrived, and we have Rolls-Royce. We have Glaxo, and JCB was born after the war, but embraced that international challenge. So much of this, I think, is about having a home market that supports the product development. So, my book ends in 1951. We were then an impoverished nation and celebrated Britishness with the Festival of Britain. 
It showed the wonderful creativity of the British people, and at the time offered such hope for the future. Quite what that future was is the subject of my next book. Indeed, indeed. How exciting. I can't wait to read this one and the next one. But yeah, where, where, where can people buy your book from? Okay, so my publisher is Pen and Sword, and the book is available on their website. It's available on Amazon and on the WH Smith website at present. Um, I hope others are going to follow. I know um, the independent bookshop in Lincoln that I know has it in stock. Marvellous. But uh, I think everyone's got access to Amazon either way, haven't they? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I do urge you go to go and get this book. It, it's uh, I haven't read it myself yet, but I can't wait to do so. So, uh, Phil, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So, Stuart, that's a fascinating interview, a bit different. Certainly is. And uh, Phil very kindly sent me a complimentary copy of the book. I urge all our uh, listeners to, to purchase a copy. Um, we'll be putting a link onto the MTD MFG site. Incredible insight into British manufacturing. Yep. Speaking of which, let's get back on with the positive news. Plenty more to come. Uh, JCB, they've done it again. Another large recruitment drive. Certainly have. They're creating 200 new jobs in North Staffordshire. It ramps up production to meet record global demand. The manufacturer is looking for assembly line workers, um, FLT drivers, operators and welders to work at sites in Cheadle, Utoxeter and at the firm's HQ in, in Roster. An incredible 18 months for JCB. Since January 21, the Factory Now member has built a record number of machines, created more than 1,500 jobs, won a raft of orders and invested £100 million developing its award-winning hydrogen engine. You know, incredible success story, and it's set to continue and continue. Uh, aerospace now, BAE, they secured a major Typhoon aircraft contract. This is a, you know, we talk about the impact of these contracts, not just the BAE, but the wider manufacturing sector, and, and this is huge again. No, very good point. The British engineering giant has been awarded a £500 million contract to support the delivery of 20 new Typhoon aircraft for the Spanish Air Force. And BAE Systems, if you don't know, they lead the overall design, development, manufacture, upgrade and support for Typhoon aircraft in the UK and will be responsible for manufacturing more than a third of the components for the new fleet, including the aircraft's front um, fuselage and, and tail. And as you say, it's wider um, economic impact. The um, very important contract is the Typhoon programme sustains more than 10,000 British jobs, including 5,000 at BAE sites in Lancashire. You know, a similar but different. We're going from aerospace to just space. Uh, Airbus, is a, 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 yeah, they've got a significant contract that they've just secured. Yeah, and a few comments on social media, you know, despite Brexit and so forth. They've been, Airbus has been awarded a £138 million contract by the European Space Agency for a satellite that can measure heat emitted from the Earth into space. The Forum satellite, which will be built at Airbus's site in Stevenage, will be built will be the first of its kind to observe Earth in the, in the far infrared part of the spectrum, providing measurements of its um, outgoing energy to help Im improve understanding of the climate system. And finally, to conclude this week's podcast, we've got another inward investment story. Yeah, there's been a whole range of them over the last few weeks. And uh, so this latest one is um, great news for Northern Ireland. American-owned forklift truck manufacturer Heister Yale is set to build, build a 130,000-square-foot extension rampant production and create dozens of new jobs at his Craig Avon factory to meet increasing global demand. So we'll have more on that story in uh, in next week's podcast. 
indeed. And it's been a great podcast this week. Let's hope next week we've got uh, as much positive UK manufacturing news. But that's all we've got time for this week. Um, for people who, who don't do so already, you should follow us on Twitter, follow us on LinkedIn. We're not, we're not difficult to find. Uh, if you want to see all the UK positive, positive UK manufacturing news, go to mtdmfg.com. Uh, Stuart, many thank you very much for coming on the podcast. As always, a big thank you to Phil for joining us and do go and buy a copy of that book. But as always, the biggest thank you is to our listeners at home for taking their time to listen to our podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Great British Manufacturing Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. You can find us on Twitter using at MTDMFG and at Jefferson underscore MFG. Thank you.